Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, a ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hello, and welcome back to the next episode of The Keto Naturopath. Today we're going to be doing something different. Ideally we do something different in every episode, but you know this is the first time, this is my third try at a particular podcast. I initially thought that I could cover dairy as a comprehensive issue in regards to ketogenic diet, and I did. I recorded a, a podcast for about 45 minutes, and at the end of that I realized I felt that it was barely scratched the surface. So then I reorganized my sequence and I gave it another take and I added more information and that was better, but I still felt it was pretty superficial. So this is my third take. And what I decided to do is actually have three parts to covering dairy because it is it is all too easy to be superficial and to miss some very vital points. And it is so ubiquitous in our diet that we really need to know about it. It clearly was a very big deal in our practice that uh, that the number of issues that dairy alone would cause. And if you could get people off dairy, you would see remarkable uh, changes. And so just simply not doing it provides a lot of changes. This is, I'm looking back in my own history from clinical experience saying it's a big deal. So now having time to really go into some of the details of why some of these things might be so has made it even more profound in my particular perspective. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a series of three podcasts. And the first one, which is today, we're going to go over just cow milk products. That's dairy, duh. But I mean, we're just going to go over cow milk products by themselves and what they are, a little bit of nutrition, some of the problems they're causing. Next week, we're going to go over raw cow milk products, considering there's two states then in which you can actually go to the grocery store and get raw milk, which is Georgia and California, and there's 27 states in which you could buy it at the farm. The other states, it's illegal. So it's a controversy, and I figured that was its own topic worth covering. The third part, or the third in the sequence, is going to be non-cow milk products, dairy products. So that would be goats, sheep, yak, reindeer, camel, even human milk. I want to make a comparison to human milk. So we're going to drill into human milk in Europe. There's a big movement away from cow milk, and they're looking for other, they're even going to donkey milk. But I'm going to cover that then. That's a couple of weeks out. I think it's a fascinating topic. There's a lot to know. And just from the ketogenic diet perspective, what's the big deal? So let's get started. I want to pretty much put my call to action, as they call it, right up front. And I want to say from the questions that are coming in, I appreciate it. I categorize them and then I cover that topic. That's how I do it. Um, and so I want to encourage people to send in their questions to and my email, be Dr. Goldcamp at Keto Naturopath. So that's D R G O L D K A M P at ketonaturopath.com. Send in whatever you want. It will get answered probably in with a couple other questions that are related. The other is that I am looking for no more than three people to begin another session of coaching, we'll call it. Since this podcast has international uh, reach, that'll be three people in the world that I want to go through over a two-month period 
to pretty much do what we did with our keto discussions with Brian. We will then go further in terms of looking at um, some raw data, 23andMe, and might even discuss some labs. But I'm looking for three people. If you're interested, send in you know who you are, and, we, and I can contact you either via email or Facebook or whatever your preferred method of contact is. I'm also putting out the same invite to uh, our Facebook group as well. Okay, so let's get started on today's topic. I, I I feel a little better that I've broken it down into three separate podcasts because I can f- I, if I feel I've forgotten something that really needed to get greater detail, then I can certainly cover myself on the subsequent podcast. So starting from the top, most of us remember cow milk in our childhood, especially if you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, it was ubiquitous. It was you always had a gallon or two, depending on the size of your family, of whole milk in your refrigerator. That has declined worldwide, by the way, certainly in the United States and in Canada, and in parts because uh, we're more knowledgeable, in part we simply got distracted by worse foods, (laughs) to tell you the truth. Okay, so what actually is dairy? Dairy, and I'm sorry if this is such a basic reference is just to get it out of the way because many of my patients would get confused. So dairy products, all dairy products come from cow milk, whole cow milk. So they would be milk and there's various forms of milk, of of skim milk, of low fat milk, etc. They also would be all the cheeses, all the cow milk cheeses. They would be yogurt, various forms of yogurt. Remember, when we're saying yogurt now, we're talking about cow milk yogurt, not any other animal yogurt. Sour cream, heavy cream, creme fraiche, and I'm sure I've missed something there, but basically anything that's derived from cow milk product is what we're talking about. I've done plenty of reading on this, and and I have plenty of disagreements, and I I have plenty of partial support for dairy consumption. Uh, To put my position out there, for me on my life only, not telling other people what to do. I don't do dairy except for uh, rare occasions. Uh, I, I love it. I mean, the cheeses and the pizza and everything else, I love that too. Um, I don't have it because of the problems it causes me personally. Certainly, I, I get, I would say I probably have a, an allergy. I get ears get plugged. I get nasal congestion. I have a runny nose. And sometimes I even get abdominal pain. So that's why I don't do it. Other people, if they don't have those problems, good for them. So there's that. So I'm a a non-dairy person, and yes, there'll be some exceptions, and I'm not uh, too anal about it. If I'm at somebody else's social gathering, then I'll have some, and I'll carry a Kleenex with me. Okay, so there's that. I'm going to go into the first thing we come up with. Oh, yeah, uh, people think that, oh, yes, of course, most people don't have dairy because they're lactose intolerant. Well, That's actually pretty true. Supposedly about 70% of the population is lactose intolerant. And most of us lose the enzyme to break down the the sugar that's in the dairy. So it's called lactose, right? And if you were wondering, lactate, meaning a lactating cow, is a dairy cow. So uh, lactose breaks down into glucose and galactose. And in order to break that down, you need an enzyme called lactase. So there are certain ethnic... Uh, variations on this and certain ethnicities don't have the enzyme even from birth. Others basically lose that enzyme, lactase, as they get into adulthood. In other words, the idea is that 
You only need that enzyme to break down milk when you are breastfeeding. Pretty similar, okay? So this begs the question, should adults be drinking milk if they don't have the ability to at least break down the sugar? I'll leave that to you. That's the, that's the number one problem that most people, but you can get lactose-free milk and so on. That is not the the dire problem. That is not the more serious problems. Those are going to be coming up. So you have lactose in um, in milk, and we have to digest that. The other two issues in terms of composition, so you have protein, fats, and carbs, right? So the carbs are the sugar, the lactose. The proteins are broken down into casein and whey. In cow milk, you have, of all the protein that's in cow milk, 80% of that is casein. We're going to talk about casein in a little bit for sure. And 20% of the protein is whey. Now, if you have an image, I don't know if you've ever made cheese, but cheese needs to be coagulated. And so what they do is they add a an enzyme called renin, which makes the casein become curds. You know, it clots up, if you will. But then you have this runny stuff. And so the whey is a water-soluble protein, and the casein is not a water-soluble protein. So cheeses are, I won't say 100% casein, but they're water and casein. So of the non-water part, they're pretty much 100% casein. Uh, Whey is not in cheese. There are some whey cheeses. When I lived in Norway uh, a couple decades ago when I was a starving student, uh, they had a thing called... Yaitost, and then they have ectoyaitost, and what that actually means is goat's cheese, but it's a combination of cow and goat's whey cheese, and it's a phenomenal cheese. I love it. Now I realize why I love it, because of, of the whey, and you can get that in the United States as well. So I'm just getting the constituents out of the way. Another issue that we have, and we are having milk, our glass of milk and all the derivatives that I've just mentioned, is that, well, how was this milk treated? We're not talking about raw milk. That's going to be next week. So this milk, for the most part, is homogenized and it's pasteurized. Most of you are probably too young. I'm old enough now to say that. And I don't, I'm not patronizing when I say that. Most of you are probably too young to remember having milk delivered to your house by the milkman. Well, when that milk was delivered, it was a pasteurized milk. It wasn't pasteurized and homogenized. Today, you buy milk when you go to the grocery store and all those paper cartons and some glass bottles, I think, still exist. That's usually pasteurized and homogenized. So let's start with homogenization. In cow milk, the fat in cow milk are such big globules that uh, it would gum up the works. It was problematic to pump through and a number of other things. and And it's felt that the natural fat in cow milk was hard to digest. Not saying that's true or not to be covered next week, but consequently homogenization breaks up the fat globules. And so back to the milkman that delivered the milk in that non-homogenized milk is that you would actually have the fat rise to the top. And you know the expression, the cream rises to the top. Well, it doesn't do it anymore in the milk that you buy, but Uh, It did then, and so you would go out in the morning, and you would get your couple gallons of milk for the family, and you would find the top inch or two, and you could see it through the glass, was all cream. And depending what your predisposition was in the family, you either fought over it or you didn't. Your parents took it for their coffee, or everybody got 
free reign of whoever got it first. It was a big deal. It was nice. And it's from that fat that butter's made. I don't think I said butter above. Certainly butter is above in terms of a derivative. Okay, so that's homogenization. Pasteurization is basically heating up the milk for a period of, I believe it's 30 minutes to above 145 to 150. I'm not feeling I have to be exact on that, but the point is you're heating the milk and you're denaturing a lot of the proteins, you're denaturing a lot of the natural enzymes, and we'll talk about that again next week as well. So pasteurization is heating things up. The idea is to get rid of various unwanted bacteria and to have it be a quote-unquote more hygienic product. And there's arguments to that, that perhaps that particular process has made it actually more difficult to digest, that these denatured fats, proteins in particular, make it harder to digest, and they've actually added a problem to that. We'll talk a little more about that later, but we'll get into some details. Okay, so the other, well, how are are cows raised? Now we're talking about dairy cows, which are in part a little bit different than uh, cattle or beef or cow, beef that is raised for the meat as opposed to uh, cows that are raised for the milk. So for the cows that are raised for the milk, we call it pastured. They're put it in the pasture. You can say grass-fed, but they're pastured. And the second is, well, what, what is added to, you know, to make these cows clean or healthy and so on and so forth, assuming we need to add something. Well, most, if you were to go to Vermont, you go to Montana or whatever your rural state is near upper New York state, all the dairy farms, they are required to use a degree of antibiotics to to keep, you know, if, if it's just like with your pets. So I'm not saying they're over, they're not given a lot of antibiotics, but they're given enough to make it healthy. And this is actually a very controversial issue you'll read a lot of what I consider bogus information out on the net that says they are given way too much in the way of antibiotics. That is true of beef cattle. They are given a lot of antibiotics, far more antibiotics. In fact, most of the antibiotics are given to cattle uh, as opposed to human and all other animals, livestock, humans included, to beef cattle. And in part, that is to, no pun intended, to beef them up, to make them heavier. And that's been around since the 50s. So that practice of just giving them a lot of different antibiotics, and they found that it made them gain weight. And obviously, if you're paid by the pound, you want your beef to be as heavy as possible. And so it wasn't a coincidence. It was on purpose. But now they're finding that the antibiotic resistance, the antibiotic resistant bacteria R and beef can be passed on to humans. Now they're rethinking that and they're obviously trying to back down from that. It's a good move. We are where we are. That's what that is. So in terms of dairy cows, they don't have anywhere near the amount of antibiotics that beef cattle have. But it's necessary per this non-raw way of doing milk. Okay, so what about that? Does that present a problem in dairy not as much as with beef for the reasons I've just said, the, the volume isn't there, but it's all related. Antibiotics are a problem for many of us, and uh, they do look for various alternatives, but this is where they are. Okay, are they given hormones? That's a question that is a dicey question, and the answer is yes and no. So there is a synthetically made hormone called recombinant bovine growth hormone, otherwise known as R. BGH. And our BGH, recombinant bovine growth hormone, and you can call this a GMO, by the way, 
since it's genetically modified, that it was developed in 1993, and it only, from what I've read, only as much as 22% of all farms ever used this particular bovine growth hormone. And right now it's fallen down to, I think, 14% of all farms. How would you know if it's in your milk or not? That if you're a milk drinker, check the carton and ask. You know, there's usually a number there that that they're not required to label it on a per state basis. So there's a big variable there. But they're, they have to be uh, available so you can call and ask a question about, does this have this in it or not? So I would ask about that. Well, then it begs the question, is this a problem? First is, depends on what you think about GMOs or not. Other is... Uh, Recombinant bovine growth hormone is outlawed in Canada and Europe. Hmm. And there isn't 100% irrefutable studies proof created yet, but the it is thought, and there are some associations with too strong of a word, that having this growth hormone is one of the insulinogenic factors in dairy, in milk. And so it would, that mean, contribute to all the things that elevated insulin, uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, type 1, type 2, cardiovascular disease, so on and so forth. We'll get into some of that. So it's probably likely. It's not proven 100%. So therefore, we'll have to say it's controversial. Me personally, where I, I, I'm not into it at all, absolutely. I'm not going to even if I was drinking milk and I love it and so on and so forth, I would clearly make sure I am not drinking recombinant bovine growth hormone in the milk that I'm drinking. So, and the fact that it's banned most most places in the world might be an indication that you might want to ban it from your diet as well. There's another hormone. So we can talk about, you know, a cow is pregnant and that's how it has a calf and it lactates to feed the calf. Okay. And so there is a practice that's been developed over the last 20 years is uh, milking a cow earlier than after the calf who is birthed. What do I mean? I mean, you could, they started milking cows while they're pregnant. Well, if you're milking a cow and it's pregnant, as opposed to it's delivered the calf, and the calf is also maybe weaning on the, the cow or not, that there's a higher amount of cow estrogen and growth hormones in the milk. Why would there be higher amounts of growth hormone? Well, because this cow is growing a calf. And in milk in general, the calf is there for the calf to get bigger. So the whole idea is this is growth, a temporary phase in all mammals' life. Think of little babies to breastfed mothers to pick your animal. It's a temporary part of their life. They're growing. This is a great nutrition but it is not just nutrition, it's a lot of hormones that are turning on various receptors, if you want to think that way, to have that body start growing. Neurologically, uh, muscle-wise, bone-wise, all tissues. Okay, so what's the summary there? More estrogens are in pregnant milked cows than non-pregnant milk cows. Is estrogens, are estrogens a problem in cow milk? That is such a big issue, and there is angry voices on both sides. I read a few small studies from Harvard. Not that Harvard's the peak of financial wisdom, but it basically says estrogens are a problem, and estrogens in general. And now we're not even talking about 
artificial growth hormones or anything else. Estrogens are a problem in children and they feel that estrogens through cow milk specifically are part of the rise of childhood obesity and the practice of milking pregnant cows as well. Just cover that part. So depending on what you read, it could be a big deal. I've also read some, and it's really hard to track down the credibility. You go back, 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 that there are so many estrogens out there, you wouldn't worry about it. My perspective on this, so since part of my education is in environmental medicine, is that xenoestrogens, all these things that are from plastics and and... So when we say xenoestrogens, that means foreign estrogens. It means artificial estrogens that came from someplace else that, uh, well, actually soy can be some xenoestrogens as well. So outside the body, that they have an estrogenic effect. But usually if it's a plant-based estrogen, and we have different types of estrogen, by the way, it's a far weaker form of estrogen. But when you're looking at chemical estrogens that have come from, let's say, BPA, BPA, I can't even remember what the whole word was, but the, but the plastic that's been banned is that you get uh, these estrogens that come off the plastic, and there's a number of different plastics. So when you start adding up the whole estrogen pile, that yes, cow estrogens are a problem for growing kids, and they feel there's a strong correlation with pediatric children, child obesity. And certainly there's a logic there. A lot more research. You can always say, oh, more research needs to be done. That basically means whoever just said that doesn't want to act on the issue. It's a political thing to say for the most part. Antibiotics, I talked about that, the difference between beef cattle and dairy cows. It's part of, my sympathy is for dairy cows that part of it is clearly necessary. Are they overdoing it? I do not think so. And I've read plenty from the dairy industry as well, trying to get both sides. Disinfectants, iodines are various... Iodines are used for cleaning the udder, right? So when you put on the, the mechanism for uh, milking, you know, how do you keep that from having its being an own source of uh, a bacteria growth? So they, it's an iodine disinfectant. Why do I even mention that? Because one of the thoughts is the iodine that is used has its own contribution to uh, various problems of dairy. So it's an, art, an artifice that's been brought into cow milk. Okay. Okay. Um, the problem, the reason I even covered this in the first place, dairy is a big issue almost regardless of what your diet is, unless you're a total vegetarian. Um, there has been some references that that, key, uh, that dairy is the perfect keto food. And let me put it on the record, you got to be a freaking idiot to say that. I mean, I'm sorry if it's so strong and I totally love the dairy industry, having grown up in New Hampshire and Vermont and so on and so forth. But uh, time to break down, I guess, what what is dairy in terms of whole milk. Uh, whole milk and of 100 grams is about 8 grams of, eight grams of fat, uh, 12 grams of carbs, and about 8 grams of protein. So that's the ratio. So does that, you know, just on those numbers, and that's pretty much across... You can check the number of references. Uh, that's you'll get that number within a half of anything you read. That means that it is largely a carbohydrate food. I said there is twelve carbs, right? Which is the sugar, so it's the lactose, and you have the fats. Uh, most of the fats are saturated, which is fine by me. From my perspective, do not worry about saturated fat. That is 
a, a, a falsehood that's been started in the 60s, and there's plenty of now research to counterbalance that by a lot. Feel free to read Verta Health blogs, uh, Verta, V-E-R-V-I-R-T-A, um, great blogs that come out, oh, I think bi-weekly. And, and just put in saturated fats and look for a recent research in the last 10 or 15 years. So um, back to keto, I don't see it just on milk alone. So then they say, well, if you have cheese. So if we're just looking at the macro level of food, of fats, carbs, and proteins, yes, that's the place to begin with ketogenic diet. But you got to go deeper than that. You have to ask what kind of fats, what kind of carbs, what kind of proteins. You know, that's the questions that need to be asked. And in the the very least, after you graduate from the macro way of thinking about your food, macronutrients, as they say, you want to say, well, as best as possible, all those categories are going to be non-refined sources. Okay. So when people say, well, cheese is, you know, 100% 100% protein minus the water, 70-30, or depending on the on the um, cheese that you have, it's mostly it's a, it's, it's a concentrated protein food. Well, we'll get into casein in a little bit, and I just wouldn't buy it. You know, I just, I'll tell you why casein's a problem, but that the idea it's a perfect keto food, that's such a superficial thing to say, and you really are not helping people out. I'm not saying don't do dairy. I'm saying don't think it's the perfect keto food because one, you it'll probably stop you from losing weight because it is so insulinogenic, which is just the opposite. If you have something that has a high glucose or stimulates your insulin to go up, that means that's going to be stimulating you to gain weight, period. I can go into a lot of those half steps if you really want to, but that's basically what we're looking at, okay? So it's not the perfect keto food. Got that out of the way. Why is it such a problem from so many? All right, now we're going to get into it. Tighten your seatbelts. Casein. So casein's pretty interesting, and I'm going to give a, a comparison. So in cow milk, you have, in terms of the protein, remember we said there's 8 grams of protein per 100 grams of milk. So in those 8 grams of the protein, 80% of the protein is casein and 20% is whey. Well, just on these ratios to compare it to breast milk, human milk, I should say, is that casein is 20% of human milk, is 20% of the protein of human milk is casein, and 80% is whey. Now, there's different kinds of casein and uh, whey as well, but for the most part, they're pretty complete proteins. They're just cobbled together, I'll say, differently. And the general aspect about casein and whey is that casein, saying it's not water-soluble, right? That's why you make cheese out of it, is that it takes a very long time for casein to be digested, if at all, and there's the problems, and we'll talk about that momentarily. And whey is very easily absorbed uh, into the bloodstream, and so many studies have already pointed this out. So in the weight-lifting world, in the bodybuilding world, they actually advise people to take casein and whey, and they see this as a perfect post-workout food. And the way they look at it, and feel free to go on, I think it's bodybuilders.com, It's a, they have a great uh, illustration of it. I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying they're playing with fire 
is that they'll say, well, you take your whey because right after your workout, because when you work out, you damage your muscles in order for them to grow, that whey hops right in there and it's a very fast rise and fall, whereas casein is a very slow rise. And so you have a short-term and long-term protein benefit. So that's how they describe it. And there's uh, credence to what they're pointing out. However, what they don't point out, and this is going deep on casein now, is that there's different types of casein. So there's human, you know, there's casein that came in human milk, there's casein that comes in cow milk, and there's actually different kinds of caseins that come in cow milk. And as casein gets digested, it gets broken down into a thing called casomorphines. So queso from casein, morphine from morphine, meaning it's an opiate. And this study is actually pretty fascinating. So in 1981 or two, that it was discovered that these things called that are then coined called casomorphine, and also the same thing is similar in gluten, so they call it glu- glutomorphine. These are opiates. These are peptides, string of proteins that actually can connect and with opiate receptors. And there's various numbers. They have opiate receptors numbered, you know, so it's not all one generic receptor. However, like opiates, if you've ever had to take a medication after you had some either surgery or you broke your arm or something that you'll remember, you know, what did that feel like? And one way you'll, we'll all remember that little bit of bliss. We'll also remember the the constipation. You'll also remember the the sense of just being out of it. So depending who you were, you either liked it or you didn't like it. Nobody really liked the constipation. And so that's a problem when people are on opiates that their gastrointestinal tract stops. So this thing called casomorphine, I'm going to elaborate a little little longer on casein. So casein in itself is a pretty big elaborate protein. And when we digest it, we're breaking apart some of this casein and uh, apparently this, we'll say a chunk of it, a certain portion of it is broken off of the the master, the large original casein, and that's called the casomorphine. And they actually identify these different pieces. And the most potent is one that's called bovine casomorphine, so BCM-7. Sounds technical. It's just that they've gotten so specific with the casomorphines that they've identified this one as being very problematic. So you now have a casein that produces a casomorphine And they believe this casomorphine has caused various uh, autoantibodies. They think it's associated. There's nothing 100% proven, by the way. Um, And let me preface all this, and I'll say anti-dairy information I'm giving you, is that there is never going to be 100% proof. You are dealing with the third or fourth largest lobby in the United States. There's a lot of money behind dairy. And it's not just the farmers. I don't think they're the ones that can afford to have a large lobby. It's basically the the milk producing ice cream and all the associated big, big, big lobby. In fact, it was, uh, for those of you who are history buffs, uh, the Nixon break-in at uh, Watergate, they broke into the dairy lobby for information on whatever. But that was, it's a big deal. Dairy lobby is a big deal. So when you're up against that kind of money um, in politics, it's going to be a long time before you're really going to get whatever truth out is out there. But when you start seeing international publications about casein being a problem in cow milk, you start to say, you know, I think that's an issue. And then when you stop drinking 
dairy or you have people close to you that have a problem and they stop drinking dairy and that problem goes away, then you're going to start wondering. I'm going to go a little further on casein. So there, of, of all the cows that we humans drink milk from, they basically fall into two categories of the kind of caseins they make. So uh, all casein is called, you know, uh, it's a, there's a lot of variants of casein, but for the most part, it's beta casein. So of all the variants of beta casein, there's an A1 group and an A2 group. And there's different cows in these A1 and A2 groups. And the interesting thing is, is that it goes like this. You have the, about 5,000 years ago, uh, there was a mutation from the cows that primarily all had an A1 casein. So think of older cows or all the original cows, original in quotes, had an A2 casein. 5,000 years ago, a mutation happened to the casein, and now it was not A2, it was A1. And so it ends up the problem with drinking cow milk from cows that have the A1 casein is that it has the highest level of problems associated with it. It also is the A1 casein cows, right? So the A1 casein cows in cow milk is the one that produces the BCM7 and all the subsequent problems. So then the question is, well, what cows do what? Is there a way of drinking the right milk from the right cows and all my dairy problems will go away? Well, in New Zealand, about 20 years ago, they started thinking along exactly these lines and they found that for the most part, two cows, two kinds of cows, uh, Jerseys and Guernseys were the highest producers of A2 milk. So why did they say highest producers and not exclusively? They just did that. Well, cows have been around each other for a long time and and very few cows are 100% this or 100% that. But the research that was done on the difference between the A2 and the A1 casein is pretty rich. And I think it's pretty certain. Others will totally disagree and say it's not certain enough. It's still conjecture out there. I don't think it's anywhere near conjecture. I think it's well beyond conjecture. But the truth is that you need to have a homozygous, to have pure A2 milk, you need to have that gene on both chromosomes, you know, from their parents. So what they've been doing is they've been, you know, like they've been doing with cattle the whole time is they've been breeding cattle to get homozygous for A2. And so there are herds that are 100% A2 and there's significant differences. And there's are a few small herds in the United States as well. And so it takes a while to trade out all the other cows and across and to breed them up to you get to 100% A2 cow milking herd. So that's what's in the future. There's a great book on this called Devil in the Milk by Keith Woodford, who's an agronomist from New Zealand. He's traveled around the world talking about this and a number of other things. And totally fascinating. So you have New Jersey Company, and there's actually a company now called A2, which does produce, it's not It's not homozygous, it's it's not 100% A2, but they kept the name of the company called A2 Milk, and it is now in the United States. You may want to go, it's at Trader Joe's, some Trader Joe's. Uh, you may want to go and try it, but with a caveat being, that milk's going to get better. It is, I don't know if it's 100%, I doubt that it's 100%, and this is what I've heard, that it's not 100% yet, but that's what they're moving towards, and it's become an international phenomenon, frankly. Australia is a close second behind New Zealand in taking up this particular issue. So there you go. So that was casein. We had A1 and A2 cows. So what are the bad cows, we'll say? 
the newer cows, the ones with that mutation, they are Holsteins, Arshires, brown Swiss, red and white. And I think some of these, I think you know what a Holstein looks like. You know what a red and white looks like. I, you probably don't know what a brown Swiss and who cares. Uh, but it's just interesting. There's two groups of cows and that's what's going on there. There was, I'll probably come back to that. Oh yeah. And so the interesting thing is what they call the older cows. So the Jerseys and the Guernseys actually came from the Jersey Islands and the Guernsey Islands between France and England. But what about the cows in India and Africa? And ends up that those cows are A2. Those are the good milk. So those are the older cows that go back back. You even have the Maasai tribe in Kenya that are nothing but, they are cow herders and their whole nutrition is based on cow milk. Well, their cow milk is A2 as well. And it wasn't one of the breeds that I mentioned because that's not a breed we have in the United States or North America. Okay, enough on casein. I hope you got that. Well, another thing that is in cow milk is called IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor one. Very close. And it's a growth factor. You got that. It's very close to insulin. That's pretty straightforward as well. Um, Suffice it to say, in milk, that makes sense. If you're a young calf, that you're going to want to have some insulin because that's a growth hormone of its sort. Also, the controlling blood sugar does a lot of functions with insulin, but consider it in the category of growth hormones. And certainly IGF-1 is very much a growth hormone. It'll make things grow. And so that's natural. It should be there. Well, when we drink it, you know, do we need to have our, do we need to have growth hormones in our milk? This is one of, this is the question we're asking. This is the question about, is milk even relevant as a nutritional component for adults, let alone children? So children, you can bet IGF, by the way, this, the bovine IGF is exactly molecule, atom to atom, element to element, exactly the same molecule as in human IGF one. So it stimulates, and there's two ways, some people say you absorb it and you, and you're affected by what you've had in milk. Others say what you drink stimulates your liver to produce even more IGF. So either way, IGF one is an issue and it does act on humans that has been documented. And if you're a bodybuilder mentioned about that, they're all about growth hormones. And even, even some bodybuilders take insulin for the growth factor of it. So they're big into this. This is not a bad thing for them. FYI, it's one of the things, and we'll get into some of the issues, meaning symptoms and conditions that are associated with dairy momentarily, but this is the one of the reasons that some of these conditions exist is because of IGF-1. Okay, on, what about whey? So I said whey is quickly absorbed. It's the non-curd protein. It's the non-casein protein. It's 20% of the cow milk protein. What happens to that? Well, it's considered to be so insulinogenic that it's, that is it, it makes your glucose go up, which makes your insulin grow up, go, go up, which drops down your glucose. It's considered to be more insulinogenic than white bread. And uh, white bread's pretty high. There's a thing called the glycemic index, which simply is a little, this is an interesting way of looking at food. It's also uh, a tad moronic, if you ask me. So what it does is like you eat something and it simply says, well, how much does your blood sugar, your glucose in your blood go up? So the, the, the top offenders would be high glycemic, right? That makes sense. And so you would have refined grains, refined carbs, sugar, right? Of sugar would be very high glycemic and very low would be protein. 
So now you have protein, um, a complete protein, that is uh, causing your insulin to go up because insulin responds to protein as well, greater than white bread. And white bread is actually used as, you know, the scale is one to 100, white bread is considered 100. So that's pretty amazing. But the thing is that, wait a minute, you go, well, this is a protein. I mean, why is this protein so, you know, so insulinogenic? We're not even talking about the carb, which was a lactose or the glucose. We're not talking about that part. That clearly is insulinogenic as well. Well, nobody knows exactly. Nobody knows the, the, the technical side of this or the, they can, they can track it down a ways, but it's not conclusive. But the summary is the cow milk in particular they think the biggest culprit is the whey, then the IGF, and then even the, the casein, is that it spikes your insulin more than, way more than is reasonable to expect in simply having, looking at the macros of protein and fat and carbs. Isn't that interesting? So this is what's coming out. This is the, this is the big dark part of dairy. It doesn't mean you don't have to have dairy all your life, but now we're saying that, gosh, it's been associated, now it is fairly strongly associated with uh, childhood obesity because milk is so prevalent in children, you know, go home and have your milk and cookies kind of thing. Or And and even before that, it's the milk, cow milk baby formula. So for the non-breastfeeding, the non-human milk breastfeeding um, neonates and toddlers that are still you know, it's still taking uh, milk, is it? it is a cow milk formula that they have. That's even before they get to their first actual only class of milk. So uh, these are problems that are being looked into, I hope. Certainly documented. Okay, We're, so now we've talked about the components of, of cow milk. I didn't go deep into the fats. I can say that they're uh, 70%, 77% of saturated fats. They are have one. That means there's no double bonds, so on and so forth. Saturated fats can't go rancid, and that's they have a, a lot of different kinds of saturated fats. They have primarily one what they call monosaturated fat, which means it has one double bond. So you go, what is he's losing me already? Well, I know it's I, I hate this terminology as well. What's a polyunsaturated? What's a monounsaturated and saturated or saturated? The monounsaturated is oleic acid. And that's like olive oil. So it has the same monounsaturated fat as does olive oil. And that puts us down to about 2% of the fats there, what they call polyunsaturated fats. That's where you may have heard, oh, there's some omega-3 in in cow milk. You know, there is. There's hardly any omega-3. And the argument is, well, you know, grass-fed or pastured uh, cow milk and also pasture beef has a higher percent of omega-3. Well, considering I think it's 0.3% of a non-pastured cow has omega-3 and if and a pastured cow, grass-fed cow, it might go up to 0.5. So it goes up a little bit, but there's so little amount of omega-3. It I consider it a non-source of omega-3. And um, then there's a few others. So that's the breakdown there. Just covered it to say I wasn't ignoring fat. It's there. Um, that's not really the bulk of why people have uh, problems. I haven't. What I'm not going to go into so much here is what are some of the other contaminants in fat? You know, they pick up environmental contaminants from pesticides and so on and so forth. That would be, and it's a broad answer, that would be automatically, yes, that would be the case. 
but it depends on what's being used in the area. That will be if most contaminants are fat soluble, so they would hang out in the fat. So therefore that would speak to butter. Speaking of butter, everybody goes, oh, butter has butyrate in it and butyrate is good for your gut. That's true. Check, check, check. Smart you. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of butyrate. It has some butyrate. Um, it's probably higher than anything else in the world in terms of an actual food you could eat. But butyrate you can get through a lot of other foods that you eat. That it's the re- You make your own butyrate is the point. Uh, some people argue that certain f- fibers necessary to make short-chain fatty acids, which is what butyrate is, that's being challenged. So uh, you get butyrate through your digestion of both meats and various fibers. And so you don't have to eat butyrate to have butyrate. So that helps. Okay. So what are some of the conditions associated with dairy consumption? Allergies for for obvious reasons, like myself. So now as a physician, you know, when you have a patient come in, they have three pages of that they've been mailed and saying, you know, tell me about your reason for coming in. What is your chief complaint? Give me some of your medical history. Come in with your past labs. Come in with a seven-day diet diary. And part of their history that I would really love to look at would be high dairy consumer, you know, or I'd see that in their diet. And then they would then probably have a history of sinusitis or as a child of earaches. And so they would then have subsequent to that a history of oh, 20, 30, 50, 100 courses of antibiotics in the course of fine seeing them as a young adult into their 20s or 30s or 40s. Why would I look forward to that? Well, because that would be something I could treat. Uh, besides asking them to stay off of dairy, that would actually be a harder thing. Um, I would look forward to that because there's a, a number of probiotics that I would use and I would rotate them through. They, their chief complaint would probably be that they're constipated at this point. You know, they have just sort of wiped out so much of their microbiota that they are just having a tough time with pooping on a regular basis. And also they've probably made it so they're having a, you know, a very poor ability to get the nutrients, poor digestion, get the nutrients from the food that they're eating. So their diet may appear to be good, but their history now with all those antibiotics has kind of ruined the mechanism. And so by at least bringing in various probiotics, and this is just, I'm saying this is the easiest thing that I would look at and they would get improvement and and just so appreciate it uh, is that you gradually start to work and to build up their uh, microbiota, their intestine microbiome. And so um, that would be something I would look for. That would be an easy thing to treat. So the harder thing would be to explain dairy I certainly wouldn't give them this story, but I would say we're going to do an experiment and you really need to uh, eliminate dairy from your diet from at, at least six weeks, ideally eight weeks. And it's not going to be 99%. You know, you're almost good. You're going to be 100%. So we would then spend four weeks to find those things that they liked in their diets that were you know, the cheese or the ice cream or whatever it was, butter as well and yogurt as well, all these things. Anything that came from a cow is going to be taken out of their diet. But we we would spend four weeks to find out what we could replace those with. So they weren't feeling they were deficient, but they'd be looking at uh, some other substitute. So they'd feel better. So four weeks for that, and then the clock would start. And we would now keep it out of our diet, and then we would bring it back into our diet. The reason we did that is you had a downregulation of your of your antibodies that were reacting to dairy. And so they probably would have felt a lot better. And when they reintroduced it, they would be, I hate to say kicked in the side of the head, but they would be, they'd have a big reaction and they would get a sense of, so you'd be very careful to start with a small little, whatever it was and reintroduce the things they ate before. 
And you do one day on the milk, the other day on the ice cream, the other day on the cheese. So that's it. It's a big deal. And so there they go with that. But we're basically doing it for this reason. But so allergies, right? So you had sinusitis. Kids would have those their ear tubes put in because they had dairy and they had so much earaches, earaches and sinusitis and so many courses of antibiotics, they finally just had to get their ears drained. And that's terrible, uh, frankly. But now something a little more serious is that we do know there's associations with a thing called folate, a cerebral folate deficiency. What does that mean? Cerebral folate deficiency simply means that in your cerebral spinal fluid, that means your brain and your spinal cord, that they actually, you know, you have nutrients there too. You have an extreme deficiency of folate. That's a dangerous thing because folate is, is necessary for cellular replication, like nerve cells, uh, among other things. Um, you also have folate in your red blood cells and so on and so forth. But that's a different a part of the body, a different component of the body, okay? We're now talking within your cerebral spinal fluid. Why is this a big deal? So cerebral folate deficiency is defined as any neuropsychiatric condition associated with low levels of the active form of folate. An active form of folate, folate has to be methylated. So we call it methylated folate or 5-MTHFR. Sorry for the acronym. It's just, it is what it is. Just called it active folate in the cerebral spinal fluid. You can, they, these people that have cerebral folate deficiency, it's only within the cere uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And yet they have a normal folate metabolism in their blood and in the rest of their body. So it's that compartment of their body they have a problem with. Why do they have a problem? Because it appears to be caused by antibodies that block the receptors involved in transporting the folate across the blood-brain barrier so they can't get in. Why do they think that is? They believe that it's a antibody that came from the cow milk proteins, casein most likely that is cross-reacted with this particular uh, receptor and therefore has made this problem. So what they found is that you actually can't give folate to somebody who's in this particular condition, you can give a different form called folinic acid that gets around that. And they find that actually makes a big difference. But let me just hit what cerebral folate deficiency would be and what you would, how you would see. That would include uh, marked irritability. So if you want to think of a child or an adult, or mostly we're thinking about children in this case, marked irritability, slow head growth, psychomotor retardation, ataxia, which means they kind of stumble around like a drunk a little bit. Uh, dyskinesia, which is involuntary muscle movements. It could be from small as a kind of a twitch to uh, larger muscles that, that twitch uncontrollably. And um, what else we have here? Seizures and even autism. Autism is coming up. So it's not a little thing. It's a big deal. Cross-reactivity from an antibody to a receptor. Immune disorders, neurological impairment, autism, schizophrenic changes, multiple sclerosis, these are not definitive, I'm saying, but there's enough evidence worldwide at this point. This didn't come out from one little hospital in the Yucatan. I'm being a little bit facetious when I say that. Um, there's enough evidence, it's certainly, and you can go on PubMed and go on Scholar, uh, Google Scholar and punch in some of these things. Autism, here's an interesting, just, just to flesh that out a little bit. So autism is part of a group of called the Autistic Spectrum Disorders, ASD. And that is Asperger's, autism, and even dyslexia is in that. 
group of ASD. Okay, so there was a study of 93 ASD children, and nearly 75% had folate receptor antibodies. So that's a big deal. And when they found that they, first of all, they were discovered, right? They were diagnosed and discovered, and they could be helped. That's why I'm pointing this out. One, I'd certainly take the dairy away, and that's an improvement. But other, you can also get folinic acid and help them out that way as well. Acne. Acne is a big association across the board. People who have dairy, now I'm speaking into adult acne, certainly children's acne. And it's a little bit of an oversimplification to say that all acne is related to insulin, but not much. You know, you're almost 100% correct <laughs> by saying that. So we're just saying acne is associated with dairy. Crib death. Here's this interesting. This is actually a study. Cow milk, casomorphine, crib death, and autism 2012 lab test revealed a high level of casomorphine and child blood and child's blood leading researchers speculate that it was the opioid activity that may have had a depressive effect on the respiratory center and central nervous system induced a phenomena called milk apnea. You can look at, there's a video online called cow milk induced infant apnea. By the way, I wanted to go back to 1983 and how do we know it's a casomorphine? I thought this is amazing. What they did is they gave people that are having these dairy problems, sorry to jump like this, but there's a lot of information, that they basically gave them naltrexone. Naltrexone is an opiate blocker, receptor blocker. And so they give naltrexone to those who are like ODing and others to block all opium, morphine, heroin, whatever is in their blood from having any more reaction. It, it's, it has a higher affinity to these re- receptors. So it blocks it. So they gave it to these children and suddenly their symptoms went away. Do people have this? So that's where casomorphine got coined and it wasn't, it was very literally, it is an opiate. Okay, that reminded me of to say that. Obesity, increased protein supply by feeding cow milk-based infant formulas in comparison to lower protein content and human milk is well-recognized major risk factor of childhood obesity. We'll be talking about human milk a couple couple podcasts away, but uh, this lower protein. Not only is there the rate, the protein there is far, it's 20% casein and 80% whey, human casein and human whey, uh, but there's less protein. One thing I also wanted to mention, I'd say it this way, but there is an upside for Casomorphines. And so the upside of casomorphines, and there is a, a, a much less potent casomorphine in human breast milk. For one, there's much less casein. So that little piece that gets broken off through digestion and as the baby digests it milk, its milk is so what is the upside of the casomorphine? Well, that little opiate, that little good feeling, that dopamine release, that's what. I was looking for before that dopamine release, that rush of feeling good. That is a bonding hormone and neurotransmitter that bonds child with mother. And certainly it's a survival instinct or a survival feature for the child saying, I want more milk. I want to feel good again. Uh, Not so much I'm hungry. I want some more opium. It's a bit of a stretch, but you get that. So there's that bonding and the, the feeling very comfortable. It's That's what that's about, is the casomorphine in human milk. Far less, both in volume and a far less potent type, but that's the same thing. Oh, there's a thing called candidiasis. So candidiasis is a fungal infection, in essence, a yeast infection, and you can get it in your gut. And for women, it's called, uh, obviously, vaginal candidiasis. There's a strong association with vaginal candidiasis, in, primarily, with uh, women who drink 
whole milk. Isn't that interesting? And also to elaborate, this is a directly a keto issue because for those who eat a lot of refined grains, sugar, if you will, they get a lot of yeast infection. And for those, uh, but they also get a thing called uh, candida albicans, which is in the gut. And when keto candida happens around the mouth, this yeast infection is called thrush. So it's the same thing in three different areas of the body, uh, but it's basically the same reason. It's a high refined diet. It's a high, high glycemic diet that feeds the fungus. It's easy to change. How is it easy to change? You drop the sugar, you get a ketogenic diet. Uh, the candidiasis goes away from wherever it is. Pretty interesting, huh? Atherosclerosis, heart disease, atherosclerosis, diverticular disease, osteoporosis. So you'd think that drinking milk is good in calcium. Please don't buy that BS. It's uh, actually very good nutrients, but it doesn't build you stronger bones. And they don't know, is it the processing, as I mentioned before? They don't know if it's the, the pasteurization or the homogenization or perhaps hormones in cow milk itself. But anyways, it's it's more associated with osteoporosis across the board than it is with any health benefit for bones, just when you thought it was great for your bones. And epilepsy. So it's associated with epilepsy as well. Epilepsy, as you know, is a clear ketogenic issue, meaning ketogenic diet benefits it. And that's where the ketogenic gut, ketogenic diet was started, specifically for epilepsy and secondarily for diabetes. Okay, I think I am going to wrap up here. You have an idea that it's a little bigger. So what would I say about dairy? If you're sitting in front of me and we're across the table and I'm saying, you know, I looked at your diet diary, I can either give you all these special supplements and you'll make my pharmacy rich, or you can take a little action yourself by taking dairy out of your diet for these eight weeks, as prescribed earlier, and see what happens. And if you feel a lot better, then I would simply say, either give up dairy completely if you're really in pain or whatever the issue is, or at least be cognizant of there's some serious issues with dairy. You may just want to walk around and avoid completely by limiting and avoiding dairy. And that's that's where I would stand. You know, I, I end up being me, but one other thing being me in the sense that that's been my decision I use for my life. And I would say 90% of all patients that came through our door in the course of 16 years, those who went off dairy and then secondarily went off wheat had tremendous improvement. So you can either supplement yourself and chase the next good thing. Uh, and there are good reasons for supplements, but you can simply do a dietary change specifically on dairy, and that will make a lot of a, a lot of uh, difference in your life. I would certainly be very concerned about it if my child was on a infant formula that was cow-based. I would certainly would prefer uh, breast milk for that child for the reasons I've already discussed and yet to discuss a couple of podcasts from now on uh, human milk. So I will leave it at that. I hope this has been worth your time. It certainly has been an issue that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I want to remind you, call to actions. If you have any questions, please send me an email. Don't hesitate to be as complicated or as simple. And there's no such thing as a stupid question, which we all grew up hearing. And this is actually true. And think about if you want to put your name in the hat, so to say. I'm just looking for three people to get going. And um, there's some things I, I, there's a requirement, what I would like to set up for coaching three people. Till next time. Thanks for now. 
Take care. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.